When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we review the week in the Champions League as Manchester United go out in pretty dire circumstances. Juventus are blitzed by Villarreal. We'll also talk about the Premier League as Liverpool close the gap on Manchester City. But would Erling Haaland hit the ground running at the Etihad? We'll also look ahead to a big weekend in the FA Cup. This is the game. Hi there, welcome back to the game. I'm Hugh Wizencroft alongside Tom Clark and Ian Hawkey. Uh, Ian on his way back from Lille. Of course, Champions League has been the order of the week thus far as we speak. It's early on Thursday morning. Chelsea cruising through with a 2-1 win against Lille. 4-1 on aggregate. Thomas Tuchel proving his worth again by switching things during the game. Got a lot of praise for his in-game tactics, shall we say, Ian. We'll, we'll talk about Chelsea in more detail in terms of their search for new owners later. Let's focus in the first part of the podcast on the actual football. And it, and it was comfortable last night and professional, should we call it? Yes, it was. Um, and, and there are uncomfortable phases. Uh, Lille were quite were quite aggressive at the start um, and they got some reward for that and obviously went ahead on the night, which could have led to a nervous moment. And, and Chelsea were, you know, efficient and organised about, about dampening that. You know, a big, big crowd in Lille and um, potential banana skin. But, you know, Tuchel's good at that in knockout ties. He's good at restoring order. And and obviously, Christian Pulisic's excellent goal just before half time really took the wind out of Lille's sails. So, yeah, cruising through, is, is I think you've got that right. Absolutely, they are. We'll also discuss whether they should actually be in the Champions League with Martin Ziegler a little bit later on. So stay tuned for that. Elsewhere in the Champions League, though, at Old Trafford, Atletico Madrid, doing a number, if you like, on Manchester United. Both sides showing why they aren't on the list for favourites for the competition. Let's call it that. But Ian, it was an old school masterclass of Simeone's Atleti, if you like. S. Howes really is best. Absolutely. And, and, and many Atleti fans would say, and, and overdue for that. This has been a really, a really non-Simeone season for for most of it you know they've conceded goals they've looked sloppy they they he's looked like he hasn't you can't reach for the solutions which is you know which worries atletico fans because some of them are uh, are young enough not to actually remember the pre simeone era he's been there for so long but yeah this was you know it was all the all the great sort of pillars of of classic simeone atletico Oblak back to his best, and that, and it's been a while since you could say that of him. Uh, I, I was particularly impressed with Antoine Griezmann for his his discipline. A couple of years ago, Antoine Griezmann left 
Atletico Madrid, where you know he was a hero, to go to Barcelona, and and I think part of the rationale was, you know, let's let me explore the flair side of my 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 game. He spent a lot of the second half at Old Trafford playing at, at what appeared to be right back, and and did so brilliantly. And you know, the, the, but but this is you know this is the, the ethos he knows that. You know we're going to be backs against the wall, and I'm going to I'm going to be playing deep in my own half a lot of the time, and I'm going to do it very well. And and I thought his diligence was was quite something. I think that was typical of the team as well. They show that extra work rate that you need in this competition, in particular if you're not a free flowing, fluent side. Paul Scholes, Tom said afterwards, the former Manchester United midfielder, of course that had Diego Simeone been managing Manchester United in that game, they would have gone through that Ralph Rannick, uh, maybe in particular, maybe just his his players, lacked that nous in this competition. That's partly true, isn't it, when you think that it's a team that starts with Jadon Sancho and Anthony Alanga, but they also signed Cristiano Ronaldo, you know, Mr. Champions League, probably specifically for this reason in these big games. Bruno Fernandes is an incredibly experienced quality player at the highest level. So I'm not necessarily sure that's actually true I thought United played okay as well in patches I've definitely seen them play a lot worse this season I don't know about you Hugh I thought they were they were okay and at times they played with a pace and intensity to their game that hasn't always been evident so it kind of felt and look I've said this before about Manchester United this Manchester United in big games it felt like the reality of where they are at in terms of you know the overall picture they're a, they're an okay team with a couple of star names Sometimes they might have got the goal, you know, the Alanga chance. Yes, Oblak, great save, or did it just hit him in the face? It's a debate as to where you stand on goalkeepers and bias and things like that. I honestly thought Manchester United were okay. It's one of their better performances, but, you know, just come up short. And maybe some of the players like Pogba and Rashford coming off the bench, you know, don't quite have the same impact as they would have done if they were in good form. Okay is exactly how most people described it. You know, as a Manchester United fan, you're always disappointed to be knocked out of competition. But as exits in the Champions League go, it wasn't an 8-2 against Bayern Munich, which, as you know, was my big fear in the Champions League this year. So, you know, there was a small part of me that said we, we went out. People said we played okay, you know, against a perceived big club and actually aren't very good at the moment either. And I think it is just, it all pointed towards overhaul. It almost felt like a, a light relief. Do you remember the comments that I think Jolene Lescott once made? And it might have been about Aston Villa being relegated. I'm sure it was Jolene Lescott where he basically said, now we've been relegated, we can all just have a breather. We can all just relax a little bit. And the fans were absolutely incandescent because it was like, well, hold on a minute. What is it meant to be a relief to go down? But I think he sort of meant, well, now we're at, we're actually officially down. We can all just take stock. We can have a breather. The, the pressure, the scrutiny is off us as individuals. And I think it felt like almost a relief. For me, this was the end of Manchester United as we know them. This was very much... This is acceptable for Manchester United. It's okay to be okay and be knocked out in the last 16. And it's not that bad. And it's not a headline story. And it's not a massive back page. They are just who they are, which is probably a Europa League team in a competition above their station. And you know what? It, you know, it is what it is. I'm not. I'm okay with that. It doesn't. It doesn't hurt as much as it probably should. But maybe that's maybe that's a personal thing for you, Hugh. But I feel like to take your Jolie and Lescott analogy, Manchester United were relegated a good few years ago. In terms of using that analogy of going from where they once were to where they are now, I felt like that happened a long time ago. I don't think it was accepted. And now I think it is accepted. Yeah, maybe you're, the acceptance you're talking about is in within Manchester United fans themselves. 
but to come back to your first question to me, I don't, you know, Ian's probably better place to answer it. I don't know whether, and we, this is why we dance around the subject of Ranić, Pochettino, Brendan Rodgers at one point, then you're going to no. start looking at An- Ancelotti. I don't know whether the, the Skull's point about Simeone you know, is actually is actually true. I, I don't know, Ian. Do you agree? Do you think you'd look at that team and go, "Yes, that's one that Simeone could mould"? Actually, on the specifics of that, uh, no. I think I think there would be there would be an awkward fit with with Simeone and and current Manchester United, um, and not not even just for the personnel. Um, I think, as I've I've said at some length before, I, I, you know, Simeone is unusual in that he's so welded in terms of his success as a coach one particular club, and it is a very particular club, Atletico. But he's not one of those managers, I would say, oh, yes, no, he'd be a good fit. He'd, you know, he'd he'd sort X, Y, and Z out quickly and then build something. Because, I, 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 you know, I'm not sure if there's, there's, there's the evidence that he could. You assume that he would make any team, any dressing room he entered, more competitive and more fierce, you know, I'm not. I'm not sure if, if 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 he's the one you would automatically reach for in in the um, in the repeated uh, search for the next perfect Manchester United manager. When I say that we've, you know, it's that moment that everyone can have a breather. What I really mean is, I think it was that point that everyone who is w- whether you're involved in Manchester United anyway or not could say this is overhaul time. This is it. You know, all of the arguments around ownership or around coaching or around individual players being good enough or not, we can stop arguing about all of those things. And we've all come to a a general feeling that everything needs to be thrown out the window. Manchester United need to start again. And there is no point having all of these arguments back and forth anymore. Let's just go back to square one. Do Do you understand what I mean by that? I do, but I think maybe what you're getting at is that you know it's not a breather in that sense. It's a, it's a maybe I'm exhausting the analogy here, but it's a, you know taking a full time off and going on going on your travels to find yourself. That's it's, it's more than a breather. <laughs> uh, but that that but that that comes from the Manchester United hierarchy and the fans themselves. That's my point as a journalist on the outside. I felt that happened and has been happening for a long time. The only problem is comes with, you know, when you sit Roy Keane and Gary Neville and people in studios and go, this is Manchester United. And like, get over it, lads. It's been like that for ages. And, you know, I'm not saying that to you pointedly as a Manchester United fan, but there are some fans also that for this, whether it's a breather or whether it's, you know, three months in a yoga retreat, finding yourself, I've definitely ruined the analogy now. <laughs> but whichever one it is, in order for those things to be actually conducive and productive to something good at the end of it, the people involved, the club and the fans, have to allow it to happen. So, you know, you're a fan who's pushing for an overhaul of the squad. The, the club actually have to get behind that and then all the other fans have to as well. So, yes, maybe you're right. It is about an acceptance that this has got to happen. But, yeah, as I say, it's more than a breather for me. Just finally on this, because I don't want to make it all about Manchester United. What I would say is, I think even though you think it's been a, a few seasons, a lot of people were in denial. Because after finishing second under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer last season, there were plenty of big names, plenty of fans saying Manchester United are going to challenge for a title this season. And so it, it clearly hasn't been you know, a, a shared sentiment for a very long period of time. But I don't think anyone can now claim that this is a team on the up anymore. Uh, we're going to move on because there were plenty of other interesting things that happened in the Champions League this week. In particular, Juventus, Ian, suffering a late blitz from Villarreal in Turin. 
losing 3-0 on the night, 4-1 on aggregate. Another Unai Emery masterclass, was it? To an extent, yes. But just on on Juventus and, and, you know, Hugh, uh, I don't know if you're looking for solace, but... Uh, you know, for the, United aren't aren't the only fallen giant, and there's quite as you know, there's a fair a fair parallel with with Juventus. Although you know, Juventus's decline is probably a bit younger than than Manchester United's at the moment. But you know, it 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 it, it can happen, and clubs can look very confused about how they try and get out of it. And, and Juventus are right there at the moment. Having said that, um, there's quite a lot of indignation at Juventus about about the way they were defeated and you know it's not it's not complaining about referees it it's it's complaining about Unai Emery masterclasses being a little bit too pragmatic and they you know they did take a, a bit of a battering in the first half however you know he made some inspired changes and and Villarreal kept their cool which was you know it, that that really is something i think you can credit to to Emery who you know who is who is really the the professor of the European knockout tie? As, as long as he's as long as he's speaking the same language as most of his dressing room, I would add that as a quite an important thing with with Emery. But yeah, but a sensational scoreline. I mean, you go go to Turin and win win three 0 and you know they they really did keep their cool, which was a, you know was the, I thought was the striking aspect of it. I saw some describe this as the worst European side Juventus have had. I, I'm sure you'll argue with that. There must have been worse than this. But where does it rank? You know, Juventus have a real neurosis about the European Cup, which goes back generations. You know that they they are underrepresented with their titles. You know, even the, some of the titles they have got have got sort of little asterisks by them, Hazel and so on. You know, it's it, it's a in the whole sort of Juventus mythology. There's 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 a thing about the European Cup. And you know, when Antonio Conte was there at the beginning of the sort of the modern resurrection of Juventus, they weren't very good in Europe. You know, that was a that was a striking deficit of 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 his time there. Yeah, you know, man for man, I, I'm not sure if you could say this side that that lost yesterday is is the worst they've had in in the Champions. I mean, they they have just spent a huge amount of money on an, an, a, a fantastic young centre forward, Vlahovic. Now you know he's he's relatively young; he's new to the Champions League, but uh, I, he would certainly he would certainly not like to think he joined the worst ever Juventus European side. So, so there's there's been there's been some slightly. Um, <laughs> uh, hysterical reaction to a lot of aspects of this defeat. Hysterical reaction, Ian. That sounds also like quite, quite, quite like Manchester United. Um, and one, one other thing that perhaps is a parallel. And correct me if I'm wrong. You know, you mentioned Vlahovic there. He's a recent signing, but you know, looking at the team, Manuel Locatelli, who was one of the kind of stars for Italy at the Euros, he joined um, in the summer, and then before that, Matthias Delict widely tipped as. One of the superstar footballers came out of that that Ajax team that everyone loved, of course. Is it a case that some of these signings just haven't come off or that they haven't, you know, they've gone for players who aren't quite able to deliver on that Juventus level that you talked about there in terms of the mythology and the aura that comes with playing for Juventus? Or have they actually been a bit poor and haven't lived up to the hype? I think that's, a, yeah, that's a very good question. De Ligt is an interesting case. You know, one day he's the... He's the Phil Jones of Amsterdam. The next day, you know, he's the new Franz Beckenbauer. I'm afraid he had a Phil Jones night last night. But yes, I mean, you know, they have they have been aggressive, as you say, in the in the transfer market with young players over over the last four years. And and you can't you know you can't say that the, the, their judgment is is flawed with especially with you know those three that you mentioned. 
young central defenders, it's there's always an element of gamble. And De Ligt was a teenager when they bought him for a huge amount of money. And 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 on the one hand, you know, he has he has the great learning of Bonucci and Chiellini around him all the time. On the other hand, he's you know he's being measured by their standards and having and, and having to find a role for himself, you know, in in you know the the marriage that they've had for so long. So uh, quite a challenging job. But I, I, to be honest, I'd, I'd, I'd be interested. You think I'd, where do we where do we imagine Matthias De Ligt will be in five years' time? Will he be? the new Virgil van Dijk, or will he be? Sorry to, to harp on about this, Phil Jones. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I uh, followed that Ajax team in great detail because I was at the time I was writing quite a lot of pieces about European football. And I mean, I would have said beyond van Dijk at that point, but I think that was partly due to how that Ajax team was viewed uh, as well. Because of course, my my best mate, uh, Donny van der Beek, was seen as a superstar midfielder of the future. And now, of course, he's facing relegation in the Premier League with Everton. I think with De Ligt, you would say that he still has the chance, as you know, some of the things you talked about there, those players that he's playing with and around and learning from and being in that pressured environment, I would say he'll probably go more the Van Dyke way than the Jones way. But just to then give me, give me some context as well, is the key, is, is it, you know, you talked about Chiellini there and I saw that he was on the bench last night. It's transition part of the situation for Juventus where, you know, for so many years, part of that Juventus aura was that they had the legendary Italian experienced players all the way through the spine of the team. And that was true in the 90s when I was watching football and, you know, following the European Cup. I remember there was a great interview clip, which I think they're still doing the rounds of, I think, a young Gary Neville, Manchester United, just when they'd got through the group stages. And before the interview starts, he asks the guy, have Juventus got through? And then he says, yes. And he kind of rolls his eyes and puffs out his cheeks and says, oh my God, bloody hell, typical. You know, and that kind of carried on all the way through, didn't it? With Buffon, Chiellini. Are these guys on the way out and they've not found the replacements and there, or there isn't the replacements within the Italian league? I think you're right that there's the, the transition is is clearly essential and, and uh, possibly a bit like Manchester United in terms of strategy. Transition was was interrupted and it was interrupted with the very very significant devotion of resources to Cristiano Ronaldo now again this is not we can't blame everything on Ronaldo and I you know I think we have to be careful of that, that. but Ronaldo took up so much of the budget and clearly was a project focused on the Champions League and you know a project that sort of you know, put some put heavy brackets in the transition process, and 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 of course they have they found the you know the wrong managers to oversee this transition. Allegri is back there this season, having left two years ago, and his predecessors only lasted a season each. One of them was Maurizio Sarri, who Juventus didn't work for Juventus, but at least he won the title. And then and the second one was Andrea Pirlo, who was out of his depth. You know, he may he may become a good coach, but it was it looks a very naive appointment now. So uh, yeah, a, a transition that has gone off in in all sorts of odd directions, but it's still very necessary. While we're on managers, Ian, I guess there's Max Allegri's future. I mean, if it's under any threat, but we should mention Eric Ten Hag's Ajax going out as well, beaten 1-0 at home, 3-2 on aggregate by Benfica, uh, who make a first quarterfinal appearance since 2016. Will Max Allegri still be in the job? And on Ten Hag, is there room for, let's call them another club to approach? This Champions League round might have been subtitled 
Man- uh, Manchester United managerial shortlist cock-up, won't it? <laughs> Pochettino, Ten Hag, uh, Allegri, who who should you know should logically always be in the in in the Manchester United conversation. Uh, look, you know, in various states of bewilderment or indignation, but certainly with their you know their short-term reputations damaged by what's happened in the last week or so. Will Allegri survive? I would say now, assuming they finish fourth, and that's, you know, that is not, or in the top four rather, and that's, you know, that's not guaranteed. Um, I think he will have satisfied most of the requirement as, you know, as it stood at the beginning of this year, because they made a very poor start to the season. He has made them far stronger domestically. That that that's not a big deal, really, because it you know it's not a brilliant Serie A at the moment. But it, you know they also have to ask themselves: Do we want to change our head coach uh, for the third summer in succession? Um, I, I think there's a there's still a degree of trust with with Allegri. Uh, we shall see. We shall see what happens next with these managers and clubs. But I thought the Champions League was absolutely brilliant this week and will continue to be. The draw, of course, uh, will be made tomorrow afternoon. So we'll have a little bit of reaction to that on Monday. There is more still to come. We'll talk about the Premier League games this week. We'll look ahead to the FA Cup weekend very quickly at the end of the podcast as well. Well, it seems like it's going to be a regular feature on the programme for the moment. Let's talk Chelsea next. The sale of the club still looms, but when and who it will be and for how much, we don't really have those answers as yet. It doesn't feel like the club or the UK government knows either, and that means the club is certainly in limbo. Chelsea definitely failed to read the room this week over the sanctions handed down to their owner, Roman Abramovich, when on Wednesday they had to withdraw a request for Saturday's FA Cup type Middlesbrough to be played behind closed doors. The Premier League side, of course, not allowed to sell tickets for the game and initially made the request for matters of sporting integrity, which didn't go down very well uh, with the football public and didn't go very down very well with the Middlesbrough chairman, Steve Gibson, either. He said Chelsea and sporting integrity do not belong in the same sentence. Of course, Roman Abramovich denies any and all allegations of links to the Kremlin. Let's speak now to Martin Ziegler, who has brilliantly been following this story for the Times. Martin, where are we now? Are we any further down the road as, as to knowing what will happen with Chelsea? Well, I think we you know, we know that the, the sort of various interested parties are sort of gearing up and by the end of the week, there should be, you know, the, the, the rain group, which is conducting the sale, will have a full list of, of everybody and then we'll be able to make a proposal to the government about um, obtaining a licence to actually sell the club. Who are those interested parties? Is there a front runner? It's quite difficult to say. I mean, there's a there's a lot of people this week have come out and said that they're um, uh, you know they're interested. I mean, the the Ricketts group, a family who own the Chicago Cubs baseball team. I mean, they're apparently linking up with Ken Griffin, the uh, one of the richest people in the USA, worth twenty billion pounds. Um, they've declared their interest formally. Um, We've got Sir Martin Broughton, the former chairman of British Airways, who's linked up with Lord Sebastian Coe, fronting another bid. We don't know who their backers are. I mean, it's fair to say neither neither Coe nor Broughton have the, have the money to do it themselves. Absolutely not. And then there's the property developer from London, um, the Candy Brothers. And then there's a sort of Swiss-American uh, group. But it's the LA Dodgers co-owner, Todd Burley, and the Swiss billionaire, Hans-Jörg Wies. 
along with the British property developer, Jonathan Goldstein. So some people say they're the favourites, but I think it's, it's, it's almost too difficult to say. There are bigger questions, and there were bigger questions this week around ownership in English football. There was a digital culture, media and sports session held this week. A few people appeared. Mark Bullingham from the FA, Helen McNamara, the policy chief from the Premier League, was there as well as the sports minister, Nigel Huddleston. And I listened to all of it, I have to say, and there weren't many clear answers for the Chelsea fans. For those of you that didn't sit through all four and a half hours, nothing was particularly clear other than it doesn't seem like football as a whole knows its ear from its elbow when it comes to the owners and directors test, when it comes to having a real understanding of who should be involved in English football. It became very apparent that over the last 20 years, it has been about encouraging as much money as possible to build as great and as glitzy a Premier League as we possibly could here. Now this week, Martin, there are questions of Abu Dhabi and in particular Saudi Arabia, as we saw some reports that Saudi Arabian media group wanted to buy Chelsea as well. And, and fans are asking this, how do we square the involvement of Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia in English football when we see the pressure now and the scrutiny being put on Chelsea in Russia? Yeah, it's not easy, is it? I mean, you know, I don't think states should be involved in, in buying football clubs personally, but it's easy to get around that because you can pretend that you can be a, a state and you can pretend that you're not involved and that you can just use an individual who's sort of connected to the ruling family or whatever and they can buy the club. It's easy to get around rules. I mean, I think the owners and directors test is, it, you know, it, it's in theory, it's a good thing, but I mean, it, it's really, really difficult to, you know, to impose and decide who, who's suitable and who isn't. I mean, it's easy enough to say if you've got a sort of five-year prison sentence, you shouldn't be be allowed in. Or, but there's lots of unsuitable people who want to buy football clubs, and it's it's very very difficult to draw up criteria just for the sake. I don't like the you know they cut all their cloth, or they're you know they're you know. I don't like the fact that they're, you know, involved. They're close to a sort of unappetising Middle East government. It, I, I, it's not easy, is it? I mean, how, look at all these people lining up to buy Chelsea. How do you make the decision about who's who's okay, who's good for English football, and who isn't? I've got to say, the Premier League's answers at the sports session with the DCMS were laughable at times. In particular, when it came to the takeover of Newcastle United. Basically, the Premier League said, if there's any evidence that the Saudi state meddles with Newcastle United, then we will act. They haven't set the parameters of what that meddling would be. And I cannot see, and they couldn't tell us how they would actually get any evidence of this happening. So all of those assurances that we were told at the time, well, they don't really know what, how on earth they could disprove or prove, if you like, that the Saudis were, and this is the Saudi state, the public investment fund, but, but above that, the Saudi state itself was running the club. I mean, it's just laughable that they've told all of us that they've had assurances when they haven't even set the parameters of, of what breaking those assurances would be. And once again, big questions, Tom. I kind of echo a lot of what Martin said. It, it's very difficult because speaking as a fan of a team in the Football League further down the pyramid, lots of fans look at this situation and kind of echo Martin's point is how do you judge what is a good football ownership? And when you think back to the, the Super League and all the conversations we had around that with we need to we need to rebuild the game, we need to change the image of the game, you know, we're talking about Chelsea and then Newcastle and ownership 
issues right at the very top. But you could argue that actually there needs to be, as as they're trying to, as they have tried to, some kind of root and branch you know, look at ownership throughout the football pyramid. And there would be lots of fans up and down the football pyramid who would be saying, it's, this is, it, you know, yes, you should tackle big issues like Saudi Arabia and Russia, but also there are more, you know, questions closer to home as well. So it, it, it's not a simple one. And I'm, you know, I sound a little bit like a, a politician at a DCMS hearing here because I'm dancing around the subject because there's, but there isn't any definitive answer, if you like. One thing I wanted to just briefly come back to on Chelsea, and I don't know whether Martin has any kind of insight on this and whether you feel the same, Hugh, but this might be in my role as the cynical editor. Again, you know, what's in it for these guys to buy Chelsea. I know obviously there's been lots of discussions around the property side of things in terms of regeneration of Stamford Bridge and the area around it. But part of me wonders whether, is this a case, Martin, of a lot of people using I'm interested in Chelsea in order to raise their own profile and then maybe not actually see it through with a full, fully-fledged bid in the same way that, say, sometimes we criticise clubs and their owners for saying, oh, yeah, we were in for six or seven superstar players in Europe, but, you know, it just didn't quite come off. You know, it's a bit of a PR game to say, yeah, I'm in the hat. I want. I would be interested in Chelsea. Is that the case at all? I think that's definitely the case, yeah. yeah. It's just going to go back very quickly to what you were saying, Tom. I actually completely agree with you about the EFL because... It, there are some really um, good steps you can take the owners and directors test, which would have stopped, for example, the former owner of Berry and the former chair, owner of um, of Bolton Wanderers, the, who, who took those clubs into administration. That would have stopped them um, buying it, taking over their clubs. The, the, the former Bolton owner had it been it been banned as a company director for eight years. But because he was then that had sort of was regarded as spent, he was then allowed to do it. So it's put, it's very easy to change the the rules to say, you know, if you've been banned as a company director, then you can never buy a football club. I think that's that's perfectly fine. So there there are very easy things you can do. There are less. I mean, the, the Saudi Arabia. The thing about it's not state owned. I mean, that's a joke. Obviously, you know, the Saudi public investment fund is the Saudi state. And it, 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 anyone who thinks that, that they are not controlled by the Saudi state, I believe, in my opinion, I think is a joke. There is one other question that I wanted to ask you guys, and I've been slated for it on social media. I was accused of having a Chelsea witch hunt, and I want you to decide for me if I'm wrong on this. And I'm I'm being genuinely honest here. So UEFA, I want to call them hypocrites, basically, because at the start, when the invasion of Ukraine happened, they immediately banned Russian teams from UEFA competitions and they banned uh, FIFA banned Russia itself from playing international matches. And I know that there's an argument around, well, who wants to travel to Russia and, and who wants to play against these teams and would the players be in danger or the fans be in danger if they were traveling? You know, in my opinion, I think the teams could have traveled. They could have played these games in neutral venues and they could have played them behind closed doors. But Spartak Moscow's place in the Europa League obviously went with that decision. The EU this week has sanctioned Roman Abramovich as well. And I wondered whether at that time, Roman Abramovich still the owner of Chelsea. He had not yet even been sanctioned by the UK government when Spartak Moscow were kicked out of the Europa League. Why UEFA didn't kick Chelsea out of the Champions League? And is that a question that they should answer? Should Chelsea have been allowed to continue? And I know people will say, why punish the fans? 
I don't think the fans of Spartak Moscow are responsible for what's going on, but they have certainly been punished for it by virtue of their location and their nationality. The fact that the Chelsea owner has been strongly linked with events in the Kremlin for a long time and has directly been sanctioned as a 100% owner of Chelsea, and again, we can quibble that with what's been happening over the past week, shouldn't Chelsea have been affected in UEFA's club sanctions? Surely they should have been, Tom. Oh, why have you thrown to me, Hugh? That's not fair. I was waiting for Martin to go and then I could just copy whatever he says. <laughs> He's a three-time award winner. <laughs> Part of this situation feels to me like, and this, this applies with the ownership as well, one of these situations where it slightly runs away from football organisations and they're just hoping that it kind of gets sorted and you can kind of carry on. You know, Hopefully Chelsea gets sold very quickly and we can all carry on. That feels like a lot of the situations, you know, it's a completely different scenario, but say taking the football's approach to COVID. It was very much carry on playing. Let's keep the games going. And let's be honest, let's keep the money flowing in for the TV uh, rights and all that kind of stuff. So I feel like football organizations at the very highest level have come up against very difficult worldwide situations that go way beyond football. And often the approach has been uh, maybe not keep calm and carry on, but panic quietly behind the scenes, but carry on. Um, And I feel slightly like that is what's happening here because I agree with you, Hugh. They could have taken a very tough stance and said, you're out for all the reasons you outlined. But then they opened themselves up to further scenarios down the line. Maybe where do you, you know, at what point do you kick teams out for various different things that are related to things way beyond football? And so it feels like to me, it's, it's not necessarily a great excuse, but it feels like that's the approach that, UEFA, FIFA, all these kind of massive, massive organizations in world football have taken that you hide behind the, we must keep the game going. We must keep the integrity, you know, use that word again, integrity of the game. We must keep the game going for the sake of all the other teams in it and for the fans when actually it's about the keep the money rolling in and don't let the politics um, and the big world scenarios be too much a part of the game. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it is comparable to Spartak Moscow, actually, Hugh. Um, so, I mean, I knew you'd be the voice of reason. No, I'm not. I, just, I, I just I don't think it's the same, and I don't. And I, I mean, I think for your if you followed your argument, you'd also have to um, kick them out of the Premier League and the FA Cup. And effectively, what you'd have to do is you'd have to put Chelsea out of business. I'm not sure that is the. I the the best way of hurting Russia, which is what this is all about. Do you think they should be kicked out of the Premier League? No, I, I don't think they should be kicked out of the Premier League um, because it's a domestic competition which hasn't set a stance in that regard. UEFA have taken a stance. They've kicked Russian teams out. I imagine that is to put pressure on the events happening in Russia. But in fact, they would be in fact they would have a bigger chance of putting pressure on Russia by affecting Chelsea than Spartak Moscow, in my opinion because of the alleged, which Roman Abramovich denies, links to the Kremlin. I, I imagine that's why the EU and the UK have sanctioned Roman Abramovich. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the English FA have said that they're not going to play any Russian teams, so that they're, they're taking, and that they're, they are, you know, they're not going to allow Russia to come to play in the European Women's Championship this summer that they're hosting. So they are taking steps against, against Russian teams. So... I think I think if you I think you have to go the whole hog and say Chelsea can't play at all rather than rather than just they can't play in Europe. That's what I think. 
That's me told. I, I mean, I, and I don't think that, and I don't think that is right, actually, because I, I think no. that is, that's not hurting Russia. Abramovich, you know, it's not Abramovich. Abramovich has already said he's not going to, you know, he's going to basically. I think it was an effort to try and avoid sanctions. That he's not going to get the money out of it himself. So, um, so I, I think it would be a sort of fairly meaningless step. Finally, with me being told, then. I'll shuttle off back under my rock. When do you think Chelsea fans will have clarification on their future? Is there a date in your mind? Well, I think it will be, say, like tomorrow, we get a sort of preferred bidder, maybe. Friday, end of the week. And then maybe a couple of weeks after that for, you know, the the sort of Premier League to authorise it all. Make sure it's uh, in no way controlled by by a national state. Well, they haven't got a great track record on that, but um, okay, we'll see if they can do it this time. Uh, Martin Ziegler, thank you for being with me. I'm sure we're going to speak very soon on Chelsea. Appreciate it. But I should say before we end this segment, Roman Abramovich denies any allegations of wrongdoing. Of course, anyone at Chelsea, the same. Appreciate it, Martin. Take care. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It was a great game in the Premier League last night. Liverpool beating Arsenal 2-0 away from home, closing the gap at the top of the table to just one point and Manchester City there, of course. Mohamed Salah was on the bench. It did take a while for Liverpool to get going, 
but a very good win in the end and a good performance from Arsenal, even though they were beaten. Mikel Arteta feeling his side uh, could have got a lot more without the two errors that led to the goals in the match. I did want to start with Arsenal on this, Tom. They lack the sort of 10, 15% they needed to get over the line, a little bit like their defeat to Manchester City earlier on in the season when they were, were definitely the better team. But it's clear they have made a big step forward this season. Yeah, definitely. I think these games... And similarly with wins away at Watford 3-2, it, it, as, as you say, it shows that building. It shows that progression because a year, 18 months ago under Arteta, they draw that game with Watford. They play against Liverpool and Manchester City and they get turned over 5-0. This season, they're winning those games against the lower and mid-table sides and they're giving Liverpool and Manchester City a good game. And as you say, it's fine margins. Against Manchester City, it was stupidity that cost them um, with the decisions and uh, the reaction to it. And yesterday, as you say, it was mistakes from uh, Ramsdale and Saka, two players who've been outstanding this season. That is where Manchester City and Liverpool are at, isn't it? That's that's where they're at, at the very, very top of uh, elite football in Europe, if you like. And if you make mistakes like that, like not covering your near post, because maybe you're thinking, oh God, he's going to go across me, he's going to go across me. And like Saka's clearance, which Robertson in, uh, intercepts. So yeah, I think you're right to paint it like that from an Arsenal point of view, because they remain in contention for a fourth place, which would be, as I've said before, a fantastic achievement for them this season. And even in defeat, there's still hope for them going forward. Are Liverpool going to be stopped, Ian? What do you think now? Are they just on the, the you know, it's inevitable, this, this sense that they're going to keep winning and winning and they will usurp Manchester City? There was a, a, a lovely quote, wasn't there, from uh, Jurgen Klopp last night about momentum. You know, he really is becoming more and more of a poet in English, isn't he? But momentum is a fragile flower. As I didn't hear this, but I, but I, but I saw it quoted. So, and uh, yeah, they, you know, they, they have a, a, a fabulous rhythm to them, don't they? But um, I, I don't, you know, I don't, I think there, there will be a slip up uh, before the end of the season. And I would still say that uh, Manchester City are going to win the title by a narrow margin. You, you think the same, Tom? No, I'm going Liverpool as I did uh, on the show with Alison a few weeks ago, Hugh, when we very went into a quite a heated debate, didn't we? And I think you backed City uh, to the hilt. Yes, um, I'm still backing look, City I, at this point in time. <laughs> I've made lots and lots of bad predictions on this podcast, but I would like to just say that even back in that run when the gap was far bigger, I did say I didn't think it was over. Just because, and it's not particularly... Uh, astute analysis it's just purely on watching a hell of a lot of football as I do in my job Manchester City just don't look as good as clinical as effective as they did last season but interestingly you know it is as much about that momentum of Liverpool I was looking at some of the stats from last season you know and lots of the stats show that Manchester City are roughly about the same in terms of performance goals shots on target shot conversion rate all those kind of things most of them actually slightly better this season than they were last season but it's actually the case that Liverpool you know, after that slightly disastrous season are back to where they were two years ago and really absolutely flying now and as you say with Mo Salah on the bench doesn't matter Jota steps up Firmino steps up and I think the massive thing for them under Jurgen Klopp and this squad which is largely unchanged from the team that won the title a few years ago is that they're no longer the Liverpool waiting for a Premier League title they won it two years ago let's just go and do it again it, it takes that pressure off and so they can be this relentless uh, force chasing Manchester City all the time but equally I agree with Ian in that I think there will be further slip-ups from both teams 
you know, a lot of our debate, Hugh, when with Alison on that show where Alison and I said Liverpool and you said Manchester City revolved around the idea that neither of them would drop many points and it would ultimately come down to that big game in April. I actually think there might be a few more Crystal Palace scenarios, potentially for both clubs, but certainly for Manchester City. Well, Manchester City has already happened, if you like. Um, we'll talk about their game in a second. But I did want to come to two of the biggest cliches in football. Um, although I should <laughs> mention, I should, I should mention that I think... Liverpool's real strength at the moment is the quality of Allison and Virgil van Dijk, John Matip playing really well and giving them platform in every single match. Because even when teams play well against Liverpool, they don't seem to, to convert their good periods into goals. Um, but And I did want to talk about one of their other defenders, because like I say, two big cliches, one Manchester City, this one Liverpool, Jurgen Klopp talking about Trent Alexander-Arnold, who was getting destroyed by Gabriel Martinelli. There's no other way to describe <laughs> it. Many people call Trent the best right back in the world. He's sort of a 7 out of 10 defensively, though. Um, he's about a 10 out of 10 in the final third. I think he's got 16, 17 assists or something like that this season. Unbelievable for a right back. But after the game, Jurgen Klopp said, if anybody says to me, Trent cannot defend, they should come to me. I'll knock them down. Honestly, I cannot hear that anymore. I don't know what the boy has to do. But like I say, I think he's about 7 out of 10, Tom. But he's better than Carl Walker and Reese James defensively. Defensively? Probably not far off Reese James, to be honest. I think Reese James is actually quite a similar player in style and in the guise of a modern right back. You know, a lot of this debate probably comes around... You know, there's there's maybe some dissertation style piece to be written on the evolution of football and fullbacks and what the definitions mean and how we think of them. Because you say a right back is a defender and therefore defenders have to defend. But in modern football, a right back is far more than that. And actually, probably more important is his attacking ability. Um, and so, as you say, Trent Alexander-Arnold in some games being an 11 out of 10 as an attacking force for Liverpool is more important than him being a 7 out of 10 as a defender. That's just the case. I mean, Kyle Walker is probably a better defender largely because of his absolutely lightning pace which allows him to recover in all sorts of positions but you know let's think about Jao Cancelo a right back who is not the same as Trent Alexander-Arnold but is in sense of that thing I just talked about the modern game I don't necessarily think he's a great defender but I wonder whether with Trent it's almost maybe because he's English maybe because he burst onto the scene for such a long time you know you have your period of raving about pet players and then you kind of go right well let's pick out what he what he can't do. But actually, I would say that maybe, I don't know, does anyone think Cancelo, for example, is a better defender than Trent Alexander-Arnold? And he's a player who we constantly rave about and say, what a, what a fantastic modern footballer he is. Look at him straying into midfield. Look at him picking up the ball in pockets of space. Look at that pass he played. Oh, wow. Look at that goal he scored. You know, all these things apply to Trent Alexander-Arnold as well. But we often focus on those moments when a quick winger gets in behind him. That happens to Xiao Cancelo all the time, doesn't it? No, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. And, and, and you're absolutely right. Maybe I was just being harsh on the guy. Um, I do think Klopp was a bit too strong because um, after what Ivan Perisic and Gabriel Martinelli has done to, to his player, I think that was a bit much. He needs to work on that area of his game. Hopefully that message gets across, not just from Jurgen Klopp. I think the fans need to get that message across as well. He would be, if he was a, a 9 out of 10 defensively um, every week, he wouldn't just be the best right back in the world. He would probably be one of the best players in the world, full stop. And I mean, top five, top 10 players in the world, full stop. But, you know, let, we've, we're talking about European football. We've got Ian on the show. Let, you know, thinking about players like Cafu, Roberto Carlos, and then also players like Paolo Maldini. 
you know, Paolo Maldini didn't score goals and create create goals in the same way that those other players did. And those other players didn't defend like Paolo Maldini. The idea of you, you're almost talking in a robotic sense about building the complete footballer, which would probably be, you know, Trent Alexander-Arnold with the ability to, fe- to defend like Virgil van Dijk. You know, you'd probably have the ultimate footballer there, wouldn't you? I mean, Ian, am I wrong in kind of placing it in the context of that, that European, more European sense and the, the idea of a modern footballer? I think, I mean, you're absolutely right. And, and you know, the, the idea that a young, ambitious fullback has about his game now is completely different from a couple of generations ago. And, and I think it, it, it goes beyond simply, you know, mastering an entire flank, Roberto Carlos-wise. It is, it, is, it, is, it is looking at central midfield, isn't it? It is, it is not just thinking primarily go on the outside. It's, 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 it's really seeing so much more of the pitch as your, as your territory. Now, that's a big ask for, you know, for a fullback to do that and do the containment stuff, which, you know, which they get judged by all the time as soon as, as you say, Martinelli or Vinicius gets behind um, uh, Trent, then, you know, then, then he is, he's, he's criticised. But um, I wonder, I mean, it, Klopp has spoken about this in the past and, and I think Trent Alexander-Arnold has, you know, why, where... Whether he might know, he might stop being thought of as as a fullback at some stage in his career, um, and you look at a player like Joshua Kimmich, who was a right back when he started. A bit further back, Philip Lahm. You know, they 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 became something else entirely, and and that was you know that was how they evolved as footballers. Mm. It's an interesting debate. Um, like I say, I think Trent is absolutely brilliant. Must work on that part of his game. I think um, too easy for players to get past him. I know Klopp basically made out that that Gabriel Martinelli was prime Kylian Mbappe last night. But I mean, come on, do me a favor. Ivan Perisic is ten years older. I mean, these players. I, I, you know, I believe Trent Alexander-Arnold should probably get the better of. And, and although people will say, you know, um, it, it's rarely played out that he has made errors leading to goals. Like I say, I think Allison and Virgil van Dijk play a big part in that. Erling Haaland's expected to join Manchester City in the summer after being offered a salary package that would make him the Premier League's highest paid player. That's according to his club, Borussia Dortmund. His contract runs out in the Bundesliga in 2024, but he does have that release clause, allowing him to leave for a fee of around £63 million this summer. It seems the financial incentives that City's Abu Dhabi owners are able to offer have been the decisive factor. Talk of wages in excess of £500,000 per week. Matthias Sammer, who's a consultant at Dortmund, said his wife had to help him off the floor when he saw those numbers. Um, But it does mean Liverpool might have to take their opportunity this season because, my word, this could make it a wrap for Manchester City. I watched their game against Palace on Monday night and they are missing a presence in the penalty area. They are missing some movement. It's great when the false nines I think there's two of them when Manchester City play with them at the moment click but when they don't I mean it just looks like they've got 10 players at times nothing you know I think they had over 50 touches in the opposition penalty area never you know again they had good chances but I think you have a Haaland in the penalty area and you batter Crystal Palace on Monday night if you're Manchester City so this could be one of the biggest signings uh, Ian in Premier League history yes and um, you know and and they should be very, very excited if they get them, if they get him. I mean, the, the process of, of extracting Holland has been quite a dance, hasn't it? Um, 
he he's obviously you, you know he's got expert advice his 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 dad knows the game very well and is um is a very sharp-minded guy um but there was you know there was a long time when the the, the messaging was that he wanted to go to spain so i i'm always i'm always cautious at you know what might be might have the, have the whiff of an auctioning tool but I, I, you 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 know you cannot see him not being successful in the Premier League or wherever he goes and and as you say you cannot the idea of him at Manchester City does really really look like you know the last perfect piece of the jigsaw I'm hesitant to say this you because this might be the the greatest clip of all time for our producer John to keep and save and keep up his sleeve to embarrass uh, one of us further down the line I'm just not sure it's as simple as by Erling Haaland suddenly get massively better Manchester City are a phenomenal team under Pep Guardiola they have been for the last two seasons playing largely without a striker when you've been playing like that and players like Brahim Sterling Bernardo Silva Riyad Mahrez um, and to a lesser extent Kevin De Bruyne have been performing in these kind of rotating flexible roles when you then bring in a player like Haaland who is a phenomenal force of nature if you like but you know operates in and around the box, as they say, and requires crosses into the box, requires delivery, requires balls in, in, in behind. You know, because you don't want to sign Erling Haaland and then having switch having him switching places with Phil Foden, who I've also forgot to mention there, which kind of proves my point. You want him in the box for those moments when he then scores a hat-trick against Crystal Palace, as you were suggesting, Hugh, and they win 3-0 and they romp to the title. If and when they sign the next striker, whether they go back for Harry Kane, whether they get Erling Haaland, it will be another evolution for Pep Guardiola to undertake under Ma- at Manchester City, I think. I don't think it is as simple with that team, with all those players, to just take Haaland, who is still a young player himself, who is still, for all his talent, learning his game, and put him in the team and go, jobs are good. I really don't. I don't know whether that's because I'm too complimentary of the current city side or whether it's because I have my reservations about. So what you're saying is he will not immediately improve Manchester City. I don't think it's as simple as that, no, because I think for all, he he is an incredible asset and an incredible talent and an incredible player. But in adding him to the team, A, you take out one of those players who have played together for a long time now. You know, that kind of rotating cast of Let's say those four players, Bernardo Silva, Raheem Sterling, Phil Foden, Riyad Mahrez, they're able to interchange both not on and off the pitch and then in positional spaces because they know each other and they work so well together. One of the things we've talked about with Chelsea, for example, is that they've got all these forward players, but they've never really settled on who, who plays where and what roles they are and don't seem to have developed relationships. Those City players do have that relationship. And I, I don't know. Maybe I'm being far too negative and I should just be blindly excited about a talent like Erling Haaland coming to the Premier League. But I just don't think it's as simple as taking him and adding it to that because I also think you then take something away from the current city and that means you then need to not completely start again. It needs a heavy, heavy tweak, I would say. And I, and that doesn't instantly, that doesn't happen instantly. Yeah, I think you might be, might be um, doing Erling Haaland down just a little bit. Um, <laughs> I'm sure I'm doing him down more than a little bit, yeah. Ian. But I, yeah. yeah, that's that's just my thoughts. But go on, please, please tell me, tell me why I'm so wrong. I mean, I, I think you're right about the potential to disrupt a very, very smooth operation. I think that's quite right. I think, I, I think possibly it, it 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 would be dangerous to to caricature, which I know you weren't doing as 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 a target man. I think I, you know, I I think Erling Haaland would certainly think that that 
he's he's got the feet and he's got the capacity for growth to 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 do the things that Raheem Sterling and Riyad Mahrez can do if he puts his mind to it, you know, as well as as well as unleash these rockets from thirty five yards out and and put himself on the end of of crosses and so on. Um, you know, I, I, I put it this way, to put it simply, I, I, I can see him being uh, a Pep Guardiola footballer. I think he's going to fit. I think one of the big things is if he does move, it looks like City are getting it done early. He's going to have the full pre-season out there with his teammates and Pep Guardiola to adapt. And he does need to adapt. I think he's going to have to work harder and he's going to have to work at his movement because as we saw against Crystal Palace, a lot of Manchester City's games are compressed into the opposition half and he might not have as much space to run into, for example. But I definitely think he's talented enough, more than talented enough to make it work. Can I just ask a quick question, Ian, about something that just popped into my head and maybe the comparison isn't accurate, but Zlatan Ibrahimovic at Barcelona under Pep Guardiola because that was a a transfer that, you know, perhaps not the same, but you had this this supreme talent who could, as you've just highlighted with Haaland that perhaps I didn't, can do it all, can score from long range, can score headers, can hold the ball up, can interlink play, will run the channels, can get in behind, is is a global megastar. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the kind of Ibrahimovic Barcelona Pep project didn't really work. Was that was that more a personality thing in the end and a clash? Was it because you know you already had Messi and Ibrahimovic didn't fit, or was it was that a case of you know perhaps some of the things I'm talking about not fearing with Haaland, but suggesting could be the case in terms of things not quite fitting and needing to make changes that didn't work. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I think you've sounded most of it. There was there was certainly a personality issue developed, and it, these are two quite stubborn people. Ibrahimovic's explanation, or the bit that doesn't reflect solely on Ibrahimovic's explanation of it, was that this was that this was precisely the time that Guardiola made a, a significant transition in his thinking about that Barca team, and. That that Messi should be much more central and much more of a focus, and Ibrahimovic was was prejudiced by this. Um, that's you know that's the that's the the tactical Zlatan view. He's he scored you know he scored quite a lot of goals in this one season there, but but yeah, it was you know it it is it 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 it, it was a misfit situation uh, relatively. So yeah, I mean you're you're right that that with with such organize such patterns teams as Guardiola develops in most places it yeah it, the, the, there's there's an element of risk would be a huge signing for the Premier League one to look forward to for all of us another great player coming to the competition and then look 500,000 pounds a week I think we'll be having those conversations about state ownership etc uh, if that signing does get over the line and um, still more to come on the game podcast but remember if you're enjoying it rate us leave us a review and make sure you're subscribed Right, before we go on this week's uh, episode of the game, it has been a sensational season in the FA Cup. It has been a season of shocks and we are hoping for more this weekend. The quarterfinals are upon us and it's really just for us to pick out our shocks and, and quickly say what we think might happen this weekend. Let's start on Saturday. Only one game on Saturday. Middlesbrough hosting Chelsea. Uh, there will be fans at this game, thankfully. Um Sporting integrity, unfortunately, not being upheld, but there you go. Um, who, who do we think will win this one, Tom? 
I mean, I think the phrase, uh, we're all borough, aren't we, comes to mind with this one. Uh, not just for some of those ludicrous uh, statements that came out of Chelsea, but because they were the story of the last round. I watched their game uh, when they knocked Tottenham out and they were fantastic. Chris Wilder's a manager that gets a lot of praise. I think he's in that period at Middlesbrough where, you know, we talked about momentum with other clubs on this podcast. It feels like they have a bit of momentum behind them and they'll have the whole fan, they'll have the whole place behind them, not just because they're playing Chelsea, not just because they're on a good run, but because of some of those things that happen before the game. Will it mean that they will win? Chelsea have got so much quality and as Ian said in their game in the Champions League, are operating with a bit of a kind of ruthless uh, efficiency at the moment. So, I will say 2-1 Chelsea, but yeah, it'll be a, it'll be a really good game and Middlesbrough will certainly uh, do themselves credit, I would say. This could be the shock. They've already got rid of, of Manchester United. They've already got rid of Spurs. They're yep. at home to Chelsea. Ian, what do you think? It's a wonderful run and, you know, that would, you know, that would be a great trio. But I, 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 um, yeah, sorry. I, 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 just, I think, I think so. Um, <laughs> They've got real depth as well. They'll, you know, players, there'll be some impatient players fielded, I imagine, by by Thomas Tuchel. And, and, and I think they will show the distinction in class, which, um, yeah, um, it's, uh, I'm, <laughs> it, it won't be, it won't be the, the most popular national result, but I'm afraid I think that's probably what will happen. Crystal Palace against Everton on Sunday. Everton not really needing a cup match at this point in time. Crystal Palace, though, Patrick Vieira, five wins as a player. Great legacy in this in competition, if you like. Is he going to take his team into the semi-finals, Tom? I think for both of these teams, I look at this match and think about some of the narratives that come with both clubs. Palace fans, I know a few Palace fans, some of them work in the Times office very close to me, so I often hear their reactions after matches. And they're at this moment now where they're, it's, it's the hope that kills you. It's the ultimate expression. They'll be going into this game thinking, we've just drawn with Manchester City, we're at home again, we can beat Everton. And so in that respect, it would be the most Crystal Palace thing to lose this game <laughs> equally it would be the most Everton thing for them to win this game. As you say, they don't need this. They need, they desperately need to focus on the Premier League. They don't need another uh, cup match. They don't need a semi-final. In that sense, I'm going to go 2-0 Everton because it would be the most uh, appropriate result for both of these clubs. And in some respects, maybe that's a shock. Does that count as a shock, Everton winning away at Palace? Yeah, I think it does. Uh, Ian, do you agree? No, but not, not for any <laughs> particularly learned reason. The better club at the moment, I think, will win this football match. It's as, as, as simple as that. But uh, but I also, I mean, I, I you can also imagine that there's a need for Everton to have some release. You know, it's, it's really gloomy, isn't it? So, uh, I, I, you know, I, 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 an impressive Everton performance. I mean, that would, you know, that would be that would be something to, to grasp that, wouldn't it? But, but yeah, Palace to go through. I'm just about to, to head up to Goodison Park to see their game against Newcastle. So I think that might affect things as well if it goes very badly. It might be big changes for Everton in this one. Difficult to see them going through. The one that I've got most question marks over, Southampton against Manchester City, goes one of two ways for me. Southampton, that have been pretty dire in their last two games, whether they get a kick up the backside and suddenly decide in front of their home fans and they've been excellent at home this season that they're going to go all out and Manchester City, who we imagine will make a raft of changes, seven or eight, uh, whether their players are a little bit rusty or whether those fringe players at Manchester City decide that they're going to turn it on and win 5-0. I mean, it's, it's one of those. It should be very, very intriguing and a very tough one to call, actually, for me. What do you think, Tom? You summed it up perfectly, Hugh. I think that's, that outlines the two most likely scenarios. I'm going to 
in uh, in the need for having having dismissed Middlesbrough and in the need for wanting to pick a shock, I'm going to go 2-1 Southampton because <laughs> I think your first scenario could happen in the sense that, again, it doesn't sound particularly astute analysis in the way that I summed up Everton and Palace, but equally it would be very Southampton, very Ralph Arsenal <laughs> to be pretty good for a couple of games then be pretty shocking for a couple of games and then turn up at home and put in a brilliant performance back by the home crowd and beat a Manchester City who are perhaps slightly more distracted than they would like to be. 2-1 Southampton. I'm going to apply a very, very sophisticated psychological tool to analyse this one. City have drawn two games nil-nil, haven't they, in the last, what, nine days? It's not going to happen again. They're going to win this. <laughs> the final one of the weekend, Nottingham Forest against Liverpool again. Forest, a couple of shocks for them. They've knocked out Leicester. They knocked out Arsenal before that. They now host Liverpool. I've been at the city ground for the previous two uh, games that I mentioned, and it's been absolutely brilliant. I think Liverpool's going to be a step too far, but maybe Steve Cooper will show us once again why he's such a, a highly regarded coach. Tom? Yeah, I think you're right. Forest deserve great credit for really energising the cup this season um, and under Steve Cooper, similarly to Middlesbrough and Chris Wilder, they made a managerial change that has really worked for them. I, I fear that Liverpool's momentum at the moment is such that Forrest could easily play quite well and lose 3-4-0 and there'd be no you know, no hard feelings on any count because Forrest then go back to chasing a playoff spot. But yeah, I can see a comfortable Liverpool win. Totally with Tom on that. The, you know, the difference, the difference between the middle of the Premier League and the top of the Championship, I think, is you know, it's it's not, it's not that great. But the difference between the top of the Premier League and and anything in the Championship is 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 huge, isn't it? Okay. Well, we're going to react to all of those FA Cup matches on Monday. Ian, thank you for being with me, Tom, as well, and thank you all for listening. Remember. You can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times for more of our award-winning journalism. And if you sign up today, you'll get yourself one month free. As I always tell you, make sure you check it out. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We'll see you on Monday. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.